Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Wealth Tech Show. I'm Ian Horn, and today I have the pleasure of talking to the co-founder of a fintech unicorn. That interviewee is Yela Schamberg, Chief Product Officer of InvestCloud, which develops digital financial solutions pre-integrated into the cloud. So, Yela, thank you for joining us. Great to have you on The Wealth Tech Show. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks, Ian. So I, I need to know more about your business and what you're doing is fascinating. So my understanding is InvestCloud supports over, over $6 trillion of assets on your platform and, and you're the co-founder of this. Yela, can, can you tell me that <laughs> this is going to be difficult because I'm going to ask you to do it in about two minutes maybe. Could you tell me you know, the succinct version of the InvestCloud story? Sure. So InvestCloud started in 2010 in a garage here in California uh, we were, I think we were a posse of about six looking to start a fintech company. At the time, fintech wasn't a thing, so it was financial technology, right? We all came from the financial services industry, and we believed that really any investor could have access to a first-class like digital platform in the cloud with InvestCloud. So we were really keen on making a pretty dynamic shift in the industry for people. And our vision was set on that. It's, it's By the way, the vision is still the same today, 12 years on. And so what we wanted to do is, is get together, have a purely cloud-based solution, which meant that any investor of any size, of any type, whether it's a hedge fund, whether it's a wealth management company, whether it's an asset manager, would really have access to this industrial strength, internationally designed cloud-based platform. And so that was that was kind of what we set out to do. Uh, like I said, it was in 2010 we started. We spent about a year and a half, two years building the platform and working on that, building what we call the digital warehouse, where everything, all the data really comes together, and then building something that I think is way wicked and cool in the industry, which is iProgram. And that is a pure code generation tool that business analysts and designers like myself can use to create all of the user journeys and all of the different experiences for our clients, like soup to nuts, beginning to end. Uh, and so with those two things in hand, kind of foundationally and a love of design and a pursuit of design, we went out to the market and started started to sell really and, and got our first clients in 2012. And as you said, massive growth now, um, $6.3 trillion US dollars on the, on the, on the platform. Uh, we are global with deployments for clients live in over 40 countries, so very internationally focused. Uh, we have over 20 million accounts running through the platform every day. So I could I could brag all day long, but I'm I'm super <laughs> jazzed about what we've built and uh, and and here we are today, 2022, like you said, and and pretty big and ambitious company, and um, just continuing to move forward into new horizons that we see and opportunities in this space. Yeah, I, I want to touch upon two things there. One is that I love that you started in a garage. I, I, I feel like any unicorn worth its salt has to begin in a garage. That seems to be the rule. And secondly, I, I want to talk about your ability to spot the opportunity provided by cloud as long ago as, as 12 years ago. That, that's, that's a real foresight. How, how did you spot the opportunity? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point that you picked up on there. So funnily enough, when we started, um, John Wise, our, our CEO and co-founder, a couple of his mates from, um, you know, Wall Street and 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 the street and whatnot were saying, "Listen, it's a terrible name. Like, don't do the cloud. No one's ever going to put anything in your cloud. Financial services are not going to go there, and they're not going to trust it." Um, but we saw pretty clearly the writing on the wall. I mean, that's where in our consumer lives we were starting to go. Not only that, with our heritage, some of the, our founders had a heritage in technology and kind of da data warehousing before. 
the problem that they saw repeat itself over and over was because it was always an enterprise local installation, it limited the amount of buyers that you could have. And it limited the amount of updates you could have and the way that those things had to be, the technology had to be supported. What's more is people got on different versions of, of the actual code. So suddenly you had disparate code bases for different clients. So it really is, it's a problem by not being in the cloud that limits your scale and your sustainability over time. And so we were adamant that cloud was the way to go and it was really only a matter of time. And of course there was a lot of naysayers along the way that were you know, terrified to, to use cloud, but there they were using a, a Google account or you know Gmail. So it's so I think it just took a little time for some people for it to become mainstream. Now, you know, people are begging us to put things into various data centers all over the world, you know, this and that and the other. And we're, you know, they're working on hosting everything. So it's it's been it's been a fun adoption to watch, but certainly right. And oh, and my last thing on cloud is we tried to buy the domain iCloud when oh, we started. Okay. We were like, oh, we're going to be Invest Cloud. Let's buy Invest Cloud and let's buy iCloud. It'll be great. And funnily <laughs> enough, it was it was taken by an anonymous owner who refused to sell it to us. You know, we thought we were being very generous as a startup in a garage offering five thousand dollars. When they didn't reply, we offered ten thousand dollars, to which they didn't reply, and we were just, you know, we were livid. How dare they? Um, and oh. of course, I think two years later it was yes. something that we all use today. Everything, yeah, sort of clicked there. That's actually right. so, so interesting. And, it, and it's actually really funny you talk about people being unsure of cloud. Whereas I feel now you'll have consultants go into a business and say, we need cloud, and no one really knows what they mean, but it seems like a clever thing to say. We, we've almost gone you know, 180 on that original point. Uh, obviously, the, the journey for you must have been an evolution, though, because this idea of using cloud computing to, to revolutionize to a point the way that we engage with our investments, that, that, that's a, a steady and maintainable goal, but your business journey must have evolved as you've gone through these 12 years. Were there any kind of key moments in the journey that you would point out where you had to either rethink what you were doing or or come up with a new strategy entirely? 100%, you, you got us pegged. And I'm sure a lot of growing companies and startups have, um, have had those moments. So we started in the alternative space. So working kind of hedge funds, hedge fund, hedge fund, hedge fund administrators, et cetera. That was certainly my heritage and where I had come from and the previous founders as well. So it was a space we knew really well, has a sophisticated product set, right? It's international, it's fast paced. We were like, if we can do hedge funds, let's go after it, we can do anything. Well, at the time, hedge funds weren't interested in, you know, the C word in the cloud <laughs> because, yeah. because of you know their alleged privacy and everything and and so very quickly we understood um that that wasn't going to be our initial target audience after all even though we built solutions with scale sophistication and security in mind for hedge funds and we found this massive opportunity in the wealth space and so we did what i think to be a, a pretty quick pivot because we already had everything there right the data model supported it um the technology supported it but we found this massive opening that people had not really been investing in the wealth space. And here we are as individuals, whether you're mass affluent, whether you're high net worth, all the way up the wealth continuum, you're using technology in your financial lives, whether you're banks or your wealth manager or in your retirement or for a pension. And very little of it was being invested in and nothing was personalized and nothing had, none of them had digital empathy that really spoke to the end users. And so we found that as a really 
big opportunity in the marketplace that excited us immensely. And we suddenly understood with our tools and our foundational um, pieces of our platform, we were perfectly positioned to go after it. And, and we did. We we just started um, started really dominating the wealth space. Mm -hmm. And digital empathy, you mentioned that. And I find that such an interesting concept because when we think about technology, I know this is very kind of basic thinking, but we often don't think about the human side of it. We don't think about empathy and understanding. In fact, they're almost, you know, technology and empathy are often viewed as distinct realms rather than things that might, you know, intermingle. What Could, could you talk us through digital empathy and the idea of it and, and, and how you've managed to work that into a fintech proposition? Yeah, that's, um, that's a fun topic. So, like you said, I think if, if you ask about digital empathy in the marketplace, it's, it's you'll get a bit of a blank stare. Similarly with design, and I think it's starting to warm up, um, but we see design and digital empathy very, very closely correlated, and we focus on design in our conversations. And the reason we focus on design is because it brings you into a more empathetic mindset of what something's looking to, like what it needs to be done and why does it need to be done, not how. Right. So kind of remove the technology from because that's that's engineering discussions and, and we're great at that and we'll solve that problem. But if you start again from an empathetic place and with design in mind, it'll lead you to a very different decision point than if you start from a tech technological point of view. And so what we believe with digital empathy is that our clients are very similar, but different. And they're different enough that they need to be distinct. What they need from us needs to be hypermodular, distinct, so that they have the choice to start their journey where they want and that they it can look and feel in a way that reflects them and their values or their messaging. So the idea that their end clients are all the same and therefore you need a client portal or a set of technology is, a, I mean, it's a bit absurd when you actually think about it because they're not all the same. Their clients aren't the same. Our clients aren't the same. So by starting a conversation and really leading with digital empathy and leading with design, and because of our platform, we're kind of giving them the flexibility and the freedom to think outside of traditional technology boxes and to say, what do your client segments look like? What do you want to be able to offer this type of client, this type of client? What are the dimensions where you, how you understand your client? Is it wealth? Is it age? Is it generation? Is it duration of relationship? Right? Is it is there a leveling within within your product sphere that you have. So what are the dimensions? And it can be anything. What are the dimensions of how you understand and categorize your clients? And then what's right for those for those groups of clients? And how do you tap into that? We had one client, for example, where um, a lot of their end users were, were ex-military, ex-naval officers in truth. And so what th was important there for that digital empathy was actually getting photos of the ships that those particular individuals had served on and bringing that as a visual into the portal, right? Something that connected with them as an individual and something that made them feel understood. Because like you said, I think people traditionally felt uh, digital was replacement, a replacement of human interaction to an extent. And really we believe it's, it's there to enhance trust, right? Provide transparency and help to strengthen the relationship between whether it's a client and advisor or a client and a brand, but it, it should be there as a as a set of tools to really to really strengthen and, and help move that to the next level. Yeah, that, that's really interesting to hear. Actually, I, I love the idea of the uh, you know, the, the naval um, you know vets having having pictures of the ships they might have served on and things like that on their on their platform. I find that really really interesting. Uh, to, to that point, when you're trying to personalize things, 
where what's your starting point? Are you looking for patterns from the end client, or do you or do you get more information from the advisor themselves, the intermediary? You know, who who really helps you to to customize that journey? Mm. I would say it's it's a mix, and probably depends on the client we're working with. Some have developed their own um, their own personas and patterns internally with the team or worked with an external party to, to create that. But a lot of times what we do is we have a process called the functional design study. And this is where we sit down with key business um, business and um, sorry, key business owners and stakeholders in the company. So it's not about technology. It's about the business solution and where you want your business to go. And oftentimes there, there is a head of advisory or that representative of the advisor community within that organization. There's usually someone kind of in charge of client experiences, uh, as well as a business head. And oftentimes the CEOs are almost always there, at least for, for part of it, to really make sure that we're all on track and we all share the same vision. And it's it's a fascinating set of time that we work together, two, three, four days, depending on the size of the of the undertaking. But what it, what it does is it allows for us to have that group exploration because you find actually people have different opinions, right? Your client experience person is pretty determined, like is anchored on something, probably client feedback and sets on that. Your advisor is probably anchored on how they can best service a client and what they need the client to be able to see to facilitate important conversations and build trust. And then you have your CEO or your business head who says, yes, but this is where our business is going. So don't think about just where we are or the problems we had. We need to solve for this problem. So, or, or you know, these new horizons or these new opportunities with new client bases. So by bringing those all together and having a very structured uh, series of days and sessions that we do here at InvestCloud with the functional design study process, it really helps to bring those together. And there's there's tons of debate, which is kind of fun because yeah. you start you start with tons and then you just work and you whittle it down. And what's great about that process is after that everybody feels a sense of ownership and that they they have input into that. So there's there's a sense of that, that belongingness. Mm-hmm. I, I really hear that as well. I can see where there's a role for focus groups and a role for vision and a role for everything. And I, I guess it has to be holistic. And, and to, to build into that, do, do um, you know, does AI and machine learning help with that process at all? Are you, are you finding that we're at a point now where where AI can can really tell us more about the customer and tell us things that we perhaps didn't notice originally. Mm-hmm. That's um, that's always a fun one. I'll break that into two pieces if I if I can. So we yeah. have on the InvestCall platform we have AI engines and machine learning a lot around what we're calling kind of next best action and research analyzer that can take a lot of information and then synthesize it and then provide recommendations. Um, or, or distill a lot of information into sound bites for people. So there's definitely AI and machine learning happening. What I think a little bit about the other side of it is how do you get how do you get a real feel for your clients, the segments, and how you want to bring those personas to life? We actually use a lot of behavioral science. So at least in the beginning, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, we understand very much gaming theory, and we know that that is how you get users engaged. We understand design theory, so we understand things have to be thorough and honest and intuitive, right? So you need thoughtful design. It's not just about colors and fonts. You need gaming theory for engagement, and then you need decision theory, which is how do you get, how do you help guide people through important decision-making points or or important uh, inflection points in their journey? And we understand that there's there's seven. We have seven di- dimensions of each of those, and so we help use that framework to bring that information out. And to really think about it and do essentially kind of a 
uh, a structured audit of are we thinking about those points? And then lastly, the last piece of that is really the data science. So I wouldn't call it AI so much as I would call it a collection and a cataloging and an understanding of all of the data for user journeys. So all across our platform, ever since we started, all the clicks, right, all the views, everything that is happening has been captured and measured. And then being able to understand that and look at that, and we were able to catalog it to see how people are actually using the system, what's working. So that means when a client, when we design and deliver a product solution for a client, if if then the data speaks differently to what their objective was or they want a slight modification, we can just simply go back using iProgram, make a workflow journey alteration or a slight change, and then deploy it in no time. So we can leverage the data to then make different choices. So I I would break the AI piece apart from that and say that it's an important part of kind of the future and where, where what we have on the platform, but we still very much use human behavioral science to design those experiences and understand our users. Yeah, and, and it seems to me that the overlap of the, the human and digital is always so important. And, and on that, you you touched upon gamification, which I think is is such a worthwhile thing to discuss because we have so many great products and tools available for people which don't necessarily get engaged with. I mean, in, in the UK, we have an advice gap for people not dealing with financial advisors, but we also have some very accessible robo-advice propositions that people could theoretically use. Now, I'm not saying they aren't using gamification, but I am saying that gamification could get more people to use the tools and, and apps that are available. Where, where does it fit into your proposition and, and and what do you think the well what do you think the key to to effective gamification is mm. so as i mentioned before i believe gamification is really about engagement so it's in a, so it's not about getting users to do a certain thing it's about capturing them where they are and where they want to be and then helping helping guide them along uh with with where where you are hoping that they go if it's right for them and so Using, like I said, our framework, our behavioral science framework, we very much use it all the way throughout. So in the beginning of the phase in the functional design study, we covered extensively. Then we we make sure that we, in our design process, we design everything first, that we're designing through that lens and that framework. And like I said, we do a bit of an audit where we do a check back. So let's think about um, the seven seven dynamics of gaming theory, uh, what we call what we call chapos here. But community is a big one. We know that as humans, we're driven by community. So why wouldn't you have, and money is such a personal thing, why wouldn't you have a closed or an invited or personal community available to you where you could share information if you wanted to do so with a spouse or a child or a partner or a friend or an advisor, right? So how do you bring a sense of community into things um, or recommendation, recommendations? We know another, uh, another big one is um, what we call like the progression dynamic. So leveling, people like, you know, why have people playing Angry Birds and Candy Crush for seven years now? <laughs> I don't know how long they're definitely, playing. I, I've definitely fallen victim to some of that. So I know exactly what you mean. Yes. So that that leveling, that progression, how do you make someone feel that they're progressing towards, maybe it's their financial goals, maybe it's financial education. So whatever, whatever it is, how do you guide them along and give them those rewards that in truth, we are all... Um, we are all interested in and subject to as humans. So again, this is just human behavior. So we very much use that lens at the beginning. And then throughout, we also often go back to our clients after, um, let's say version one, version two or something. And we say back and we're like, are you ready to, to take a little more digital risk? Because we believe your digital success is directly related to the, 
the digital risk you're willing to take. And a lot of clients, I think when they start to tiptoe into the digital realm are a little timid. And the idea of gamification, behavioral science um, feels like a future step for them. So what's great is we have very kind of elongated relationships with our clients. So it's not one and done where we go go back and we say, okay, are we, are we ready to revisit this through this lens? And oftentimes they are. And so then we can start to, pro again, using the progression dynamic, we're able to help them progress through uh, and incorporate that into their portals and ultimately have a better experience for their internal users, their externally, external users, et cetera. Yeah, and then to go completely, completely different tack with this, we've talked about gamification, we've talked about digital empathy, We've talked about, you know, creating and in and, and building a, a, a cloud-based business. What I'd like to know, because you, you, you obviously have a really broad skill set and knowledge base, where do you get your inspiration from? What, what, what kind of realms are you looking to for, for inspiration on what to do next in fintech? Mm. A lot of it is, um, we're big innovation, innovation shops. So a lot of it is us sitting and working together. We get together kind of as a management team and a product team multiple times a year. We gather across the globe and get together um, to start thinking about what's next. And we always have not only our eye on what's next, but we're always building what's next. And I think um, I think looking outside of our industry has provided a lot of inspiration for us. Like I said, we started very much as a design company in Los Angeles. No one was starting financial companies in Los Angeles. It was, again, in addition to don't, don't name your company Invest Cloud. You know, don't start in Los Angeles. Uh, but we really felt by doing something different from the very beginning, it gives us a different perspective, and therefore we can build a different type of company. So we have designers from all sorts of industries, right? That did movies, that did um, uh, rock videos, uh, death metal stuff. You know, and people that were accountants. We have designers that were architects. So we have a whole bunch of designers that really bring in a lot of beautiful ideas and views from outside of our industry, which which essentially liberate us from thinking much like the same or much much like the rest of the industry. And we draw a lot of inspiration and time from that. And and then we also were big into art. So going out into the, you know, a little bit to the art world and kind of living and breathing into the world and seeing beautiful things in the way the way people are consuming data, other types of data, right? Art data, information, um, sometimes complex information, sometimes very colorful or innate information. And so we're, we're always looking at how information is being presented and consumed in other areas of our lives. Um, and that also extends, for example, into financial wellness. And we believe really strongly in financial well-being and wellness. And how do you bring wellness that we think about outside of our financial lives into a financial arena? Because if you're stressed about money, I, I guarantee that's not good for your well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to, again, change tack. I mean, that was a, a great answer, I think, for anyone running their own business and trying to take it to the next level. I think that that kind of inspiration and mindset is obviously very helpful. But I want to talk now about uh, no-code software, which mm -hmm. doesn't immediately sound as exciting. I just think it's a term that sounds kind of boring, but what it does is actually kind of cool because uh, you know it allows people to build their own applications without any knowledge of, of coding. Uh, so you, you, you've obviously put no-code software to good use at InvestCloud. Could you explain what you've done there? And also, I, I know a good number of our listeners will know about no-code software, but I, I imagine a few also won't. Could, could you offer a bit more context for that as well and just explain what it is and how you're using it? Sure. I'm not a techie. 
I, I couldn't code my way into, I don't know, into anything. So I, I understand and empathize with any user or any listener out there, sorry, who uh, who's not technical. But, and, and that was very much the point when we started, we wanted to build a platform that we knew was gonna be technology agnostic to an extent and was gonna be flexible because all we knew is that things were changing and we were calling that change, but I mean, who knows where we're, we're going in the next three, five, 10 years. We just know it's gonna be different and we have some ideas and we need to be around and flexible in order to do that. We also knew that digital empathy and design was a big piece of that. So how are we going to be flexible, you know, trend agnostic in technology and be flex, uh, sorry, and be able to meet our clients wherever they are as their journeys progress. And so what we built was what I mentioned before, iProgram. So what that is, is that's essentially programs writing programs. So it's generated code. And what that enabled us to do is have users like me, I was actually the first user of it, who has an accounting and finance background. So I know nothing about tech and code, um, but it allowed someone like me who knows design, who knows user interaction, who knows the data to sit down and completely generate all of the user interactions. And in fact, I built uh, I built our, our products, our first products that went went to market for a hedge fund administrator so that hedge funds were using. Because I understood the business and I understood design, but I didn't know how to code, but using our tools, I was able to completely 100% generate that code. Today, we have over 7,000 different user journeys on the platform that are all 100% generated and all look and feel different. So you can imagine working with some of the largest, the largest banks down to the small niche wealth managers they all need to look different. No one, no one's going to tolerate something that just slaps a logo on it. It needs to look different, feel different, maybe have different, um, uh, different vocabulary, vernacular, you know, different representations of things, a different way of communicating. And because we developed this no-code, essentially this iProgram platform, we can deliver on that, and we can say, okay, you can have, you know, client number X. You can have these six different client journeys all which look and feel a little bit different to meet your client needs. And when you're ready to change that using iProgram, we can generate it and we can change it. What it also means is like I mentioned, uh, a level of technology trends or, or uh, technology agnostic. We've seen changes happen literally in front end code. And what, what the results for our peers and people in the industry is a complete rewrite of everything, right? When Angular goes from Angular 1 to Angular 2 or, or whatnot, again, I'm not techie, forgive me, but there's no migration path. What it means is you have a team of programmers sitting there hard coding a new solution and and you're not getting you're not getting anything out of it. You're just getting parity for a huge amount of time and money to deploy that. But what iprograms does is iprograms can now can now actually generate the new code base using all the stored metadata. So everything that you put in there before as your business requirements as your business user and designer, it understands and now it can help move things forward into into the next the next type of required uh, code or generation or technology that has to play well with another piece of technology. So it it really enabled us massive flexibility and scale. And again, now we have just thousands and thousands of different user journeys where most systems have between 80 and 100. And that's pretty good, 80 and 100 different ways of seeing and using your data. But like I said, we have over 7,000 and we wouldn't be able to do that without iProgram. So that's yeah. that's really how I think about the the no code environment and what it actually provides for us and our clients. Yeah, I think no code is, is particularly fascinating because we look at the the wealth and advice market and the and the tech stacks that that we have. It, often, the companies operate with tech stacks that aren't actually that well integrated. 
And I think the future solution and something that I've discussed previously on the podcast is creating tech ecosystems whereby everything that's built will speak with everything else in that ecosystem. And then if you bring no code software into that and you're looking at all of a sudden the people who use this stuff, the people who use the technology and know exactly what's needed and know what's good and what's bad will be building their own solutions and adding that to the ecosystem. And I think that will lead to an incredible uh, improvement in the client experience, which is not to say that clients are getting a bad experience now, but just to say what the, the opportunities are. Uh, and to talk to about something else you've, you've got, which is Invest Cloud X, which I, I read you've just, well, I say you, your, your, your website describes it as a, an Amazon-style financial supermarket. And the idea is, is to revolutionize how asset managers market their financial products to wealth managers. Now, that, that sounds interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. could, you, could you talk us through that one, please? Sure. Um, we lovingly refer to it as either Invest Cloud 10 or Invest Cloud X. It depends if you want to read it as a Roman numeral or a letter. I was going to say, um, have I just created, uh, committed a cardinal sin there by calling it not, X? Not at all. Not at all. But when I refer to it as Invest Cloud 10, now you'll know why. Um, we really we wanted it to be, we wanted it to feel like a really exciting starting point for everything we have on the platform today, plus the world of the financial supermarket. So think about, um, where we are today on our platform, we have over 300 apps, you know, client portal, mobility, a digital device robo experience for advisors and wealth managers, advisor portals. Um, what do we have? Um, digital device proposaling, right? Digital device planning. So we have like all of these tools already, accounting and performance, all that stuff today. And then that really supports a whole host of wealth advisors, over 400 different wealth advisor shops today and hundreds and thousands of, of different advisors. And then what you have now is all these asset managers that need access to the wealth management space because that's where their products actually grow and move on and live. And so you have all this important thought leadership, all these clever analysts, right? All these people doing research and crafting beautiful financial products that in truth, what we've seen, the pattern we've seen is that technology is an inhibitor from asset managers the product, the right product in the asset manager getting into the right portfolio at a wealth manager. And what I mean by that is oftentimes people are limited to the financial products that are on the technology platform. So depending on what account type you're opening, what institution, what the home office has allowed, like what you have to do for your account, depending on what technology you're using, then tells you which product you're allowed to use and match with your client. Which is, you know, and and if if we've learned anything, I think, in the world of where we're going holistically is like it's an open world, right? Open architecture world and finance needs to follow and which which we are big proponents of. So imagine a place where you can bring, a marketplace where you can bring all these asset managers onto one platform, all these wealth managers onto one platform and really allow them the idea of a simple search, looking through things, seeing tagged information, looking at videos, podcasts, interviews, things that are actually t helping to tell the story about these financial products, not just a fact sheet that's emailed or sitting in a lobby of an asset manager that doesn't really see the light of day. Advisors are very busy. They don't necessarily have time to, to look and do massive amounts of research. How do you give them the right sound bites, media, and information to help them match with the right type of clients, portfolios, and, and financial objectives that their, their clients have? So that's really what we're calling the financial supermarket. And InvestCloud 10 encapsulates all of that, all of that client, advisor, and the, the distributor experience where they can do an easy proposal, they can make a financial plan, and then they can shop for a product. They can find the right product, they can match it, and then simple execution. And that gives asset managers access 
to the wealth managers and over 20 million accounts on our platform. And it gives wealth managers access to over 150 asset managers already today on our platform. So it really is what we believe is going to be something pretty um, pretty revolutionary in the industry to have a single platform, as you said, technology that plays well with others yeah. and you can kind of plug into, but also brings its own ecosystem to play as a really strong starting point for everyone. Yeah, and I think that interoperability is going to be a huge part of the future landscape. I, uh, I again, there are several things you've discussed here which could be much longer discussions, but I, I actually want to finish by talking about about you and and your background. I mean, firstly, I mean we don't see enough diversity within tech unicorns, certainly not at the leadership level. Uh, and, and you, as a, a female co-founder, are no doubt kind of you know, aware of this, uh, mm-hmm. just, just to back it up with some basic numbers, if anyone needs them, um, you know, in a Deloitte 2018 study called Diversity and Inclusion in the VC Industry found that 86% of investment partners or equivalents are men, and an 80, 80% of investment partners are white, just to add a different diversity perspective. Um, mm-hmm. from, your, from your perspective, you know, how can we get people from more diverse backgrounds into tech unicorns like, <laughs> like what? Invest Cloud. Yeah. Um, that's, that's always a good question and always something I think that in truth, everyone, everyone's thinking about and, 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 uh, executing on probably slightly differently. I'll tell you from my viewpoint, I'm very proud of, of us as a company. We have a very strong leadership team, very international, even, even headquartered in Los Angeles, our executive team and management team is very international, um, strong representation with women, uh, which is is great because the truth is the natural world is 50-50. So when you can represent that in your company and bring that level of balance and different ideas and thinking, we all, I think fundamentally, we all know and, and believe that we're better off. Um, where, where we've seen, interestingly enough, um, some of the, I think what's plagued the industry and where we've seen some of the, the lack of diversity that we'd like is almost like at the beginning. You think about it. It's it, we haven't personally experienced a lot of like drop off, but what we see sometimes is limitations in who in the the candidates we're getting at the door, mm-hmm. and what we and what what I personally believe and what have been involved in a little bit is is how do you start at a at a lower level, right? At an internship level, at a college level, at a high school level, where you're starting you're starting to to light a fire in young people's mind about opportunities for them that they might not five, 10 years ago, they might not have had visibility to, or they might not have seen people like them in that industry. But how do you open a door and a window to them and provide either internships, opportunities, conversations, um, you know, sitting down and and just sharing a cup of coffee? How do you do that? I think at a a stage where they're still developing their ideas and identity about who they are and where they, where they might belong. And I think, I think if we all focused a little bit more on that, we would probably see, okay, maybe not immediate satisfaction in that, but this is a long-term game that we need to re uh, I would say rebound and bring balance back into, into our ecosystem, especially in financial services and technology. And I, I think that's one of the major parts of it. It's not the only place, right? There's a lot that can be done, but I do think that's that's one that's often overlooked. Yeah, I, I completely get that. And I find what's often overlooked is the, the inequalities are, are kind of baked into the system before anyone even enters financial services. And that I, I guess we need to be proactive to do what we can to redress that balance. I would add one more thing on that. I'm sorry, Ian, to, to okay, uh, which is I've also seen historically people hire 
not everyone, but if you look at a human pattern, people hire people like themselves. Oh, they remind me of when I was young, things like that. Um, so there's a, there's an innate human behavior and quality there, which is not necessarily ill-intended, but there's a consequence to it. And so by one, by recognizing that, that perhaps we as individuals might have a bias to people like us, and by spreading out the recruitment and the hiring decisions sometimes provide for more diversity, give a, a more diverse group of individuals say and the right to hire. And I think by by the nature of who we are as as, as individuals, we'd start to see a little bit a little bit more of diversification in some of those candidates or those people that are are coming through as as potential um, as potential fits. And disregarding, we're not huge into pedigree here at Invest Cloud. We're more into who are you? What's your skill set? Are you willing to roll up your sleeves? You know, what have you done? What do you want to do? And really bring them, you know, who are the right people and bring them onto the bus. And so I think also a traditional lens of financial services and finance through the lens of pedigree has also limited limited the candidates, like you said, because what you don't see is is the struggles or the funnel someone had to get through to actually get there. Yeah, absolutely. And and what advice would you have, you know, moving beyond that conversation slightly, but for someone trying to emulate your achievements, someone trying to build a unicorn, that's that's quite a unique experience. We don't speak to many people who've been able to do that. What, what's your advice? Um, I have a, a, a couple bullet points on that. One would be definitely like lean into your skis. If you've ever taken like a ski lesson and you're going downhill and they say, put your shins on your boots as you're going downhill. And if you're leaning back, you're more likely to fall. Whereas if you're leaning into it, which feels terrifying, <laughs> you know, go for it. And you'd be surprised you'd be surprised how well you do going down that hill. So the one thing is uh, definitely lean into it and and think about the yeses instead of the noes. I think as, as humans, we're good at sometimes trying to like protect ourselves or protecting other people. Yes, but, oh, that's a great idea, but I don't think it's gonna, right? Because I think I'm doing well by you, Ian, by telling you why something's not gonna work and maybe the things you should be thinking about. Here I am trying to be helpful to you because I'm a great friend. Well, guess what? That's not helpful. It doesn't give you the right energy. It doesn't give you the right, right mindset and it's not helpful. So keeping yourself in the right and surrounded by the right yeses. I mean, not to be delusional, but if you don't believe you can do it and you're not going for it and you're, if you're looking for no's, you'll find them everywhere. So yeah. definitely look for the yeses, find the yeses. You know, everyone the, that we say about being, you mentioned a good question earlier about um, being able to pivot providing a level of like agility to yourself and your mindset with what you want to do. And I think lastly, the, we're big proponents on leverage. We're stand on the shoulders of giants. What can you do with others? We, we look to design giants in our industry, not in our industry, but across to leverage in our industry. We look to other, uh, how do you look at what other people have done, other ways people have mastered things and leverage that. So, you know, don't be a, don't be a, what do they call it? You don't need to be a martyr, right? Like, how do you leverage smart people that have been doing smart things and really keep building? And then honestly, keep selling. If you don't, if you're not selling, you're dying. And by that, I mean, like, sell what you're doing, sell what you've built, sell what you're excited about, really believe that you're adding value to people's mind. Don't be timid and think, well, I'm going to sell later. Well, I have to get it perfect before I sell. No, find the right type of beta partner, type, right? The right innovative innovation partner, sell it to the right type of person that wants to go on a journey with you, whatever it is, but get out there and get selling. Yeah, brilliant. And, and one other thing, actually, because I just want to tap into something else you said there, which is all that well-intentioned advice you get, which 
sometimes I guess you do actually have what well, you should actually follow it, but a lot of the times you shouldn't. What, what I'm wondering is, is which piece of advice are you, are you glad you declined to accept? Well, there was definitely, definitely the advice to change our name, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm glad we didn't listen to. Uh, the advice to not do cloud, which we politely declined. The advice to not do cloud internationally, which was more recent, because you know international players are never, you know, are Europe and and whatnot are never going to be comfortable with it, uh, which we politely declined. And so I I think it's been where we've declined it is in our steadfast beliefs and our foundation in the pieces that we need and who we really want to be. And then you just you appreciate that people are trying to be helpful. You say thank you and you and you carry on, but you have that conviction. Yeah, Yela, look, thank you so much. That was such an interesting conversation. Thanks for sharing the story of Invest Cloud and, and of yourself and, and how you've grown it and adapted and, and pivoted through the years. I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, great conversation and thank you. And to everyone who's listened in, thank you for joining us on the Wealth Tech Show. Uh, I've been Ian Horn and I'll be back again next week.